that is uh, really interesting too is I'm not going to lie to you right I am not going to lie to you because I know there's probably a lot of people who are um, listening who are probably already thinking this you know so I'm going to say a lot of black businesses really do have bad customer service I'm Uh not going to um, pretend that they don't like like a, a lot of them do right but mm-hmm. like you said, even when the black cus- black business is providing uh, good customer service or trying, you know they'll still get nitpicked a lot by um, black black businesses. But something else too that needs to be um, called out is a lot of even when they do have legitimate bad uh, business. A lot of y'all will put up with some of the shittiest customer service from fancy white places that you would never in a million years put up with from um, a white place. Equivalent. From a black place and still brag that you got to be um, at the hottest new place where all the cool white people are. You got to brunch at the hot new place that's all over Yelp and Eater and whatever. So, yeah, you will... So, even when in the cases where there is bad service, you will put up with that bad service uh, from certain people. And the case I have in mind is um, a place called Bagatelle. Um, I'm sending you a link right now. Um, okay. Take, take a look, because there's a picture in the link. I'm going to put it in the show notes. But uh, this place Bagatelle, right? Uh, this is from Atlanta Black Star, and I chose this one because it has the picture, but it was covered in a lot of places. Um, I'm New York Bistro use racist code seated. Oh, I remember this story. Yeah, you remember that, right? Employees yeah, yeah, claim yeah. <laughs> upscale New York City Bistro used racist code seated black patrons at back of restaurant, and they used racist words to discriminate, and it was unofficially called the ghetto station. <laughs> where they put them, <laughs> but but um, here's, here's, here's the best part. Can you see the picture? Uh, yeah, the one where they sit in the <laughs> where they are, where it's four people in three seats. Yes, they squeeze them so like three people had to share two chairs, and they could barely fit at the table. I mean. Like, when how do you almost, eat dinner like that? I would you, you should have gotten up and left. Like, how do you eat? How do you sit down and enjoy your meal like that? Exactly. Ex- ex- that's exactly what I'm saying. <clears throat> do you think in a black place they would have put up with that? And they probably nah. stood online to do that. And I'm sure they all Instagrammed the shit out their brunches and whatever. You know, um, the fact that they were looking at that menu and sitting down. And I'm like, y'all be so happy. 
to get like the white man's scraps. Like, you know, you <laughs> whatever, man. It's 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 nuts. It's nuts. It's that whole it's like that saying, like, uh, a lot of black people think like the ice the the white man's ice is colder like mm-hmm. yeah the right man's ice is colder that's exactly what it is and you know one of the things that ends up happening man is a lot of times like a black business will preemptively try to shit on the black customer because they fear that the black customer is trying to shit on them so it's like one of these things where you know i'm gonna get you first before you get me it's like this expectation yeah. of low quality that they have toward one another and so that creates situations that otherwise wouldn't be there if they just went in you know square with each other and, and act like it was a normal situation and then tried to judge it from whatever happens on a normal ba- on a case-by-case basis but if you go in already thinking oh lord this is a black business this is gonna be janky and then the owner thinks, oh, Lord, here comes my people. I know they're going to come in here asking for a discount and wanting this and that. You're already creating a negative energy in that situation that's just going to escalate once one thing goes wrong. You know what and I mean? And you nailed, you nailed where I was going to go um, next. You totally nailed it. Because um, the same way you said like the black people asked for like the world from the black business and ask above and beyond. Uh, you're right. The owners, it goes both ways. Cause I've been in black businesses where like a white, um, customer shows up and they'll be very deferential to the white customer and even like be preferential to them and like, you know, skip them over you and do whatever, mm-hmm. you know, you'll be at the table and they won't be coming to you or they'll come to you and just be like, yeah, whatever. But then to the white people, they'll be like, oh, we got to make a good impression because these people, you know, Maybe they think they'll be more easygoing. Maybe they assume they'll tip better. Maybe they'll figure, oh, this person might spend more money, spread word, and bring more white people. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, they'll give that white person the benefit of the doubt. Something was interesting that happened to me once. That happened once. I was with my friend, and I was very glad that um he did this. We went we went to um Barclays Center, and he ordered he ordered um two. Shake Shack burgers or something at the Barclay Center. Mm-hmm. And we're like standing there. And we um he gets one burger. He's and they're like, wait, you know, we gotta make other burgers. So so we're, we're sitting there waiting, you know, only one burger. He's waiting. And then this white guy shows up, and it was all these um black girls working. This white guy shows up and they were acting really sweet to the white guy they were kind of like flirting with him and you know he's there he's like talking it's it's smiling and they were you know all kind of falling all over each other like uh talk to him it was uh, a little bit weird you know and and they were small talking him and everything he was saying like they were giggling and then you know he ordered two burgers and then they they went oh no don't say it please don't say it they brought the two burgers straight to him (laughs) <laughs> and they're all like you know deferential and they walked right by my friend and wow this was, this was something because because this guy <laughs> this guy is very uh confrontational and i was glad that he did this he just like sucked his teeth he goes what and he just walked over and just snatched the guy's burger like, <laughs> and he took he took the extra burger and he didn't say anything walked away but then that was interesting was the white guy like, what the fuck and then yeah. the the women 
we're like, we're so fucking rude. What the fuck? And they, all of them, the white guy and the black girls working, were all kind of um, shocked and disgusted at what my friend did. And I was like, you know, like uh, <laughs> fist pumping. I was like, nice. Because because me, I'm a guy, bro. See, this is the difference between, see, he's a person, right? He's always looking for the worst. He's a very like uh, negative person. So he's mm-hmm. the kind of person that's always ready for shit. He's always yeah. ready. Whenever we used to go out, I've known him for a long time. Whenever we used to go out, he would always get into a fight at the drop of a hat because he's always, uh, you know, ready for something to go off, which is a bad thing. But the good thing for him, and this is what's uh, different than uh, me and him, is a lot of times I'm expecting the best until the worst happens. So a lot of times I'll get shocked when something happens, you know, and then, um, then I'll realize after. Like what happened at the movie theater and stuff. Where I was like, you know, did he really say that? You know, but him, because he's always ready. He jumps into action at any uh, slight. So yeah. I was like, oh, you know, good for him because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it would take a couple of seconds for it to register. But what I found interesting was how is that same benefit of that thing. Because first, in addition to them just deferring to him because they weren't giving us that small talk they weren't like batting their eyelashes or like you know flirting with us and they weren't uh they forgot about him just to, to make sure that they were rushing to give him service right oh, uh, oh, and oh. god forbid he wait what's interesting was when he went and snatched it they didn't give the benefit that to think, oh, wait, maybe he had a good reason to do it, you know? Because right. if they stopped and thought for like 10 seconds, they might have thought, oh, shit, we fucked up and skipped them. Like, mm-hmm. I would be mad, too. Mm-hmm. You know, there'd be a certain amount of empathy where they would put themselves in his shoes and be like, oh, wow, you know, maybe even be embarrassed. Like, look at us just like fawning. Over now, your, let me yeah. let me just say this, because yeah. this is a thing now. <clears throat> Are you? I hope it wasn't one of those situations where you can jump the line if you order ahead on like an app or something like that. No, no, because this is at Barclays uh, Center, which is a stadium. It's like you know what the Staples Center is out there. Okay, right, right, right. Th- there's no deliveries. There's no. There's no. You know, everyone's attending the game together. Oh my god! Yeah. So, so this was, guy, he was behind us online. He ordered after us. Oh no and, shit. Okay, yeah. Well then that's that's really agree. That is crazy, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we came first. They just happened to run out of the particular thing he wanted, which was burgers. When he had one last one, there was a fresh batch coming out. So we were waiting for like four or five minutes. This guy came after us online. He was still at the counter because they were like flirted and like he had just ordered. That's what I'm saying. Like he just ordered his stuff. So he just ordered stuff. You guys ordered two burgers. Uh, he ordered. He ordered. He two ordered burgers. two my burgers. Friend, yeah, my friend ordered two burgers. He was waiting on the two burgers, and then not only did the white guy come after him, but he got fresh burgers for two fresh burgers first, which were probably meant to be for your friend. He got the burgers, and then your friend snatched the burgers. Like, what the hell? This is this is what happened. Close, <laughs> my friend. Everything everything you said was right, but the one difference is they gave my friend one burger that was already ready. That had been out for a while, and they said we'll give you the second burger when the fresh ones come out. But my wasn't my friend walked away from the counter so that they forgot about him, and it wasn't like he was like gone so that you know it slipped their mind. He stayed at the counter, but next to the register, so that 
people after him who weren't ordering burgers or who or whatever could order. So wow. me and my friend are to the right of the register, right? We're to the right of the register, there with one burger in hand, so that you remember, like these niggas had to be here for something. Like they're not just <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> they were like just socializing at the Shake Shack counter. Like you know, there's there's a guy with one burger and a space on the plate where a second burger should go. And he's just been here for like five minutes, whatever. Like, so we were in a place where you could forget about it. And where we were sitting, I mean, where we were at on the counter to the right of the guy who ordered and was, and had just ordered his uh, burgers was between the register and where the burgers came out of. So <laughs> she had to walk past my friend with his one warm, lukewarm burger waiting. With she had to actively, yeah, she actually had to walk past him with her t- two fresh burgers. And uh, she had to walk past him with his one warm burger to give him the two. So, so you know, it's like, out of it. She either had to actively ignore him or just, he was just so invisible. Both of us so invisible. Well, either way, that's, that's, a, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know which one is worse, right? So yeah, so so she she just came over and he was we were just so shocked and and I was so proud that he uh jumped into action for the guy went away, but the entitlement like what the fuck? And then the women getting so like disgusted, you know, and and angry. You know, and they still didn't it. have any clue that's why. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it it was, yeah, it was that's uh, crazy. Yeah, it, it was it was fucking nuts. So yeah, I mean, we went on a little bit of a divergence. Let me say Major one last digression. Thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's all related. It's not, it's not a real digression. But um, <laughs> the African American customer um, in the Bagatelle story. Bagatelle is the name of the place that had the lawsuit for being racist. Um, the goal was to make patrons feel so uncomfortable that they wouldn't want to return to the restaurant. So they were willing to lose business from black people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this white, this white restaurant. And the story says an African American customer visiting from Detroit wrote of the horrid customer service he and his party received at the bistro on review website Yelp. And he says the table for 12 was set for 11 and was so cramped we'd pretty much eaten shifts not one time did the front come by and ask about anything not once and it's like mm. wow but you still sat there and ate in the shifts you know mm-hmm. like you were still mm-hmm. just so grateful to have um you came from detroit to eat at this restaurant that's how bad you want to eat at this uh restaurant to the point that you were eating in shifts and yeah you got mad and, le- and yeah you left the review but you Sat there, you um, paid for the food, you you ate in the shifts, you logistically contorted yourself to keep eating there. So sometimes you can wait on something for so long that you know you're just like fuck it, I might as well since I'm yeah. here and I no, waited no, this. I you know what I mean? Part, like once the, you get a certain to, the point, to a certain to point. S- yeah, at that part I get. If you wait so long, yeah. you're like, I already waited this long. I'm just gonna stiff him on the tip, but you know, whatever. But the mm. fact that they were seated in a way that they were going to have to eat in shifts already. Like, I'm saying, mm. the fact that they sat Wasn't down. This, excuse me, I didn't mean to cut you off. Wasn't this the same story where it actually didn't come out that that was going on um, officially until one of the white employees? You know, he was he grew disgruntled with the with the 
with the establishment and kind of told everything that was going on behind the scenes? You know what? I think you're right. I think he was questionably white. Unfortunately, I closed the um, page, but let me let me reopen. No worries. Um, I feel like the guy might have been like uh, a whitish, like Brazilian. Like he wasn't black, but I think he wasn't. Yeah, um, it, yeah. He actually sued the the uh, the restaurant. Yeah, and that's because how the, the story came out. Yeah, because I think what they were doing was they were uh, giving white. Because obviously, they probably wouldn't hire uh, black people to work there if they hate black people as customers so much. But I think he was something where he was not black, right? His last one guy's name is Barreto, which sounds like either um, some kind of Latino or something. Yeah, yeah, Barreto. This is this is interesting, and I think I think you nailed it, right? It's a French place, Bagatelle, right? Mm-hmm. The suit also, um. Oh, oh, this is interesting. They're also not straight. So, so, so listen to this. The mistreatment wasn't just reserved for blacks, however. I'm so glad you said this. Um, <laughs> let me back up even further. Additionally, Barreto and Kant's suit claimed that African-American customers could have their reservations canceled altogether simply because of the color of their skin, unless they were affluent celebrities like Serena Williams, Beyonce, and Jay-Z, of course. But the mistreatment wasn't just reserved for blacks, however. Ding, ding, ding. Unattractive white people also were seated in the (laughs) quote-unquote ghetto station, while Barreto and Kant said they were subjected to harassment from fellow employees because of their sexual orientation, the suit claims. It also accused the bistro's management of favoring French servers and French people are good for this. French people are good at taking care of each other. I, mm-hmm. I've noticed this. Over non-French servers by giving them preferential treatment. For instance, the lawsuit states that non-French workers like Barreto, who is Brazilian, were often assigned to the sidewalk cafe in the sweltering summer heat and called outside bitches. That was their... Um, and then the, the lawyer for them added bagatelle gave true meaning to the word to the french word bourgeoisie where french serv- servers were superior to the non-french presence said lawyer paul Ligieri, oh. who's representing Barreto and kent laurent nicoud the restaurant's former manager this guy's throwing a lot of extras on it much like the historical figure of maximilien robespierre used his influence as manager to go on a reign of discrimination against patrons I mean, this lawyer is really reaching for the <laughs> really historical references, laying it on thick. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so basically, there's discrimination against <clears throat> unattractive white people. There's, um, but there's also like employment discrimination against gays, uh, and one of them is gay, and one of them is Brazilian. So he's not black, but he's not white. The other guy is probably white, but he's gay, and all these things kind of make you wonder. What if they treated them correctly, but um, only shitted on black people? What would mm-hmm. these people have done? Because, because, like, like you said, they only um, got upset. They only got upset because um, they were getting kind of sucked in and um, discriminated on too. But in addition, the suit probably only got really listened to at the same time because it was. Um, non-black 
uh, people who were making the accusations, you know, like yeah. that benefited the doubt also was uh, given, which ties into the subject of this show. Essentially, because you remember Denny's years ago was accused of, of mass discrimination, like all across the country, like Denny's would. Per- I actually experienced that one time, you know, uh, uh, me and my wife, we had went to Denny's one time um, for breakfast or lunch or something. And I mean, this guy, he sat us down at the table, man, and it was myself, my wife and my son, who was like three at the time, my oldest boy. And I mean, this dude, he was they man, they were bringing out anybody who wasn't black. Man, they were bringing out hot plates, you know, steaks steaming off of the grill, hot pancakes, everything. We're still sitting there waiting for our food. I think we sat there for like an hour, dude, waiting on our food after we had ordered. And so my wife just had enough, man. And she hops up and goes off on the guys and everything like that. I was still on probation at the time, so I couldn't risk getting too crazy. (laughs) So, um, man, she goes off on the guy and it turns out our food had been sitting on the damn counter ready to go for like that entire time. And then they come and they bring our food out like here. No, no, it's, it's right here. Here you go. Here you go. Like, I'm not going to eat that shit. It's ice cold now. What the heck? Everybody yeah. else, the people who literally came in like a half an hour after us were getting their food. Parties of five. It was just three of us. There was parties of five and shit. And then there was another, there was an interracial couple that was sitting a few tables over from us and the same thing was going on with them. But it also shows how like invisible, like, you know, you can be like, Mm -hmm. like, you know, that, uh, no more just wonder, Hey, what are these people doing here waiting so long? Like, you know, cause there's been places where I was, um, getting bad service, right. Where some, Body would come and say, "Oh, you guys still didn't get your food yet. Let me go to the kitchen." And well, yeah. it wasn't bad service, but I wasn't getting my food. And they would notice and be, you know, like a good service is supposed to do that. Like tell, like notice when somebody's been there for a while and nothing's changed mm-hmm. at their table. But yeah, when people render you invisible, the opposite happens. You can just be sitting there forever. Closing time comes. Maybe they'll even lock you up in this. Like, <laughs> they'll clean around. Like, are you still, sir? Did he, have you been helped? Are you, what the <laughs> fuck do you mean? Have I been helped, man? <laughs> I ordered my food two hours ago. You know, it's that kind of thing. They'll start locking up. They'll start wiping the table. Yeah. You there. <laughs> it's cleaning off the table. Like, man, okay. Yeah. And um, yeah, this show has had so much information. I'm not even going to try to keep it short because there's just no way to. Right. Keep it short because there's gonna be a lot of dots to um connect. But I wanted to uh go through a bunch of uh various stories of different things that have happened, you know, over the years that have shown like, you know, both you know how that white benefit the doubt goes a long way to um helping uh abusers and how that sometimes causes us to be uh targeted and you know how people bank on that white privilege like like they're not um they're not stupid they're doing it for a reason right right now um let me see okay there was there's one article and if any of these that we bring up have those examples of those fucked up responses you know that you can think of feel free to interrupt and bring up the the responses cuz 
from compiling all of these, they've kind of all melded together for me. Um, but these, by the way, these are all going to be in the show notes. This will be a very long show notes. United Nations troops literally rape black men, women, and children with impunity. And it's time we expose it. This is an article on uh, Medium. And even though it's a Medium article, so some people might say, oh, it's a blog. Um, it's very well sourced. They put a bunch of links to um, other stories. So here's what happened. And a lot of times the Caribbean, and especially Haiti and uh, Africa, will uh, often be uh, name-checked. But it says... Um, Imagine watching your parents murdered by rebels in front of you as a child or surviving the most devastating earthquake of the 21st century and then being subjected to rape, torture, and sexual extortion by the same people sent to allegedly help you. This is what men, women, and children have been subjected to for as long as United Nations quote-unquote peacekeepers have occupied black nations. For decades, United Nations troops have preyed on the most vulnerable of those they were served to protect and serve with virtually none of the offenders facing justice. Um, so first example, child molestation in Central African Republic. 2014, three girls in Central African Republic, Congo, came forward and revealed they were tied up and forced to have sex with a dog by a French military commander. Then in 2015... Ugh. A confidential report was leaked detailing allegations that French soldiers raped and abused dozens of boys aged between 9 and 13 who had come to get something to eat from United Nations checkpoints. Many of the parents, boys' parents had been killed amid fighting that devastated the country. And again, there's a source. It's all linked. 2016, 14-year-old girl in Congo told Human Rights Watch she was walking down a path in the bush when a United Nations soldier approached her in a car. He ripped off my clothes and used them to tie my hands behind my back. Then she was raped. She was one of more than 100 children to come alone in 2016 alone, including a seven-year-old who was forced to perform oral sex on a UN soldier in exchange for water and cookies. Again, sourced. United Nations pedophile ring uncovered in Haiti. Since Haiti rose up in, um, so, because I want to read the whole thing. Okay. Um, in, um, in 1990, uh, after the ousting of Aristide, which uh, many say was fishy, in exchange for food, UN peacekeepers demanded sex from children as young as 12. In regards, yeah. they, they ran a whole child sex ring in Haiti the UN peacekeepers and nine children were passed around the UN peacekeeper child sex ring from 2004 to 2007. They were doing that thing where they were like advertising them to other UN peacekeepers and trading them like, you know, and letting people like have their turn with them. I didn't, I did not even have breasts said a girl known as victim number one, who was allegedly forced to have sex with approximately 50 peacekeepers over a period of three years between her ages of 12 and 15. One of the perpetrators was a commandant who she said gave her 75 cents in exchange for sex. Uh, victim number one explained she would often sleep in UN trucks on the base. A young boy, victim number nine, was 15 when he was first sexually abused by a UN peacekeeper. Over the next three years, he was forced 
allegedly to have sex with over 100 Sri Lankan peacekeepers on average of four times per day. The vile behavior of UN nation's peacekeepers led to an entire generation of peacekeeper babies, illegitimate children born to rape victims who were too ashamed to break their silence. Um, in this Al Jazeera English expose, many of these victims told the story for the first time. Um, historically, and this is the key, the UN, the United Nations has demonstrated a tolerance for patterns of sexual abuse. Uh, according to Washington Post, in the Democratic Republican Republic of Congo alone, more than 150 allegations of abuse and exploitations were registered against peacekeepers, and many found many investigators found that many of the alleged victims are orphans and it happened in Kosovo, Haiti, Liberia, and other places have been tarnished by such allegations. Um, the UN, the United Nations calls the rape smear allegations, citing that the accounts by the men, women, and children could not be independently verified and independently verified usually means no white person was willing to, um, go on record. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, it's basically like independently verified means no one but the niggers um, right. was making the accusations. Um, you gonna see a lot of that in some of these stories too. And, go ahead. Yeah, ironically, the United Nations had no problem verifying the rape of two hundred girls and women by Congolese rebels back in two thousand thirteen. Uh, so the black on black rape, they had no problem. Uh, Finding that to be independently verified somehow, <laughs> somehow independent verification. Somehow, somehow, the black people counted as independent verification when they're accusing uh, other black people. <laughs> yeah, this be- this behavior indicates a tolerance for the behavior of his troops and an attempt to divert attention from his unwillingness to examine his own misdeeds. So what it's saying is, this also they like to use it to kind of distract from their own misdeeds. You know, they welcome when it's a black on black rape. So, yeah, the U.N. didn't even bother to commission a report on rape within his ranks until 2006, despite allegations that span decades. And I'm curious to see if there was a white whistleblower in that one, because I know in one of these cases, there was a white whistleblower that finally made them take action. And that white whistleblower was uh, punished. Um, I wonder if um, this is this is that case. As the only major action taken by the organization of nearly 1,000 troops it was to um, expel nearly 1,000 troops whose units have been tied to rape cases. So they just um, told them to leave the Congo, but there was no actual like prosecution or punishment. Like, the punishment was, you know, you can't stay here and keep raping. Right. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, not really... Um, a punishment. UN peacekeeping troops have legal immun- immunity from prosecution in many of these host states. Meaning, the oh only pros- punishment they face is deportation back to their native country. So, so you have to wonder. Um, and this disproportionately African and Caribbean, particularly uh, Haiti, that gets that gets these um, cases. You have to wonder how many people might even be attracted to um, joining these things just for... For the purpose of getting some sex. Yeah, you know, they might, they might yeah. be like, oh, if I, not if even, I go here. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, not even just some sex, but, you know, 
in a specific scenario, you know what I mean? Like you never know what kind of sick fetishes some of these people have, you know, in their personal lives and things like that. So they're in an area where, you know, there's very little oversight. No one's going to say anything and no one's really going to believe the people if they come forward and say anything, you know, it's, it's always a similar situation, man. That is, that is really sad. Isn't it? Yeah, it's the same thing. I was reading a story um, just yesterday, as a matter of fact. Um, it was a, by a guy named Joffrey Johnston, um, and he was writing about a lot of the sexual abuse plaguing like um, international NGOs. And it was like a five or six part article. And one of the things he was discussing in the first one was about uh, this organization called Oxfam. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Oxfam, Oxfam whatever. Yes. And uh, I'll just read it as quickly as I can. It says in the wake of a massive earthquake. In the wake of a massive earthquake that devastated Haiti in 2010, humanitarian non-governmental organizations or NGOs set up relief operations on the island nation, providing life-saving assistance to injured, vulnerable and desperate Haitians. However, in the fullness of time, it was revealed that some humanitarian workers took advantage of their positions of trust and power, sexually exploiting vulnerable women in Haiti. For example, a number of staffers with the Oxfam Great Britain allegedly paid local women for sex in 2011. An Oxfam investigation into the allegations resulted in four staff members being fired and the resignations of three others, including Roland Van Hamarian who served as Oxfam's country director in Haiti. For his part, he denies having paid for sex in Haiti. The Haitian government reacted with outrage to the scandal and has temporarily suspended Oxfam's GB authorization to operate in the Caribbean nation. And over the next two months, the government will investigate how Oxfam responded to the allegations of misconduct by its staffers. Oxfam representatives recently traveled to Haiti to meet with government officials and to apologize for the handling of these cases and gave Haitian officials a copy of the internal report prepared in 2011, stated an Oxfam spokesperson in an email. Oxfam says it will appoint an independent commission made up of women's rights and human rights advocates and other experts to recommend measures to eliminate sexual exploitation, abuse and harassment. It will act independently from Oxfam with the access and resources needed to analyze the organization's culture, policies and practices and to make recommendations on how these can all be strengthened. The NGO spokesperson said to the Whig standard. Now, here's what's interesting. Oxfam responds to withering criticisms. What should they have done to protect vulnerable women from exploitation by predatory men working for Oxfam? The whole Haiti situation, while it, while it is terrible, why is it, why is it a terrible, terrible thing that happened and shocking on every level? I wouldn't say it was a complete failure either in terms of how it was addressed. Oxfam Canada execute director Julie Delahanty said in a telephone interview. However, Delahanty conceded that there were measures taken that at the time in hindsight, were clearly not enough to prevent sexual predators from taking advantage of the vulnerable. But there was a whistleblower who laid the complaint with the headquarters, Delahanty said in defense of Oxfam's handling of the scandal. There was an investigative team that went. There was an investigation that took place. In addition, the Oxfam Canada boss said that the perpetrator of the abuse, for the most part, were fired or resigned or left the country. 
And she said that those things were publicized by Oxfam Great Britain to some extent, but they didn't publicize clearly enough the nature or severity of the crime. So right there, you know, it's interesting to me to note that some of the people just resigned and left the country. So it doesn't say that they were fired. It doesn't say that they were revoked from ever working with other organizations or flagged in any way from working with some of these other organizations and going into these other countries and helping out people. It just says they just simply resigned or left the country. Mm-hmm. Then she says they Delahanty contends that there were things that went right in that response of Oxfam. For example, she thinks Oxfam should get credit for telling the news media that it was launching an investigation into the abuse allegations. And she praised Oxfam for providing information about the abuses to the UK Foreign Office and the UK Charity Commission. However, it is clear that Oxfam took far too long to reveal the abuse perpetrated by some of its staffers on the ground in Haiti. So much time has passed since the alleged incidents that the damage cannot be undone or adequately mitigated. According to the spokesperson, Oxfam will identify ways in which we can provide support to survivors of abuse on a case by case basis. However, the NGO acknowledges that some instances it will not be possible to identify specific individuals given the amount of time that has passed. Wow. Um, this is a great segue into what I'm going to talk about next. This leads perfectly. Like it's, I'm shocked we didn't plan this. <laughs> this works out good because as you're showing a lot of the um, passes that people were given, right? Mm-hmm. Listen, listen to this in comparison. Um, UN aid worker suspended for leaking report on child abuse by French troops. This was in the Guardian. Oh. Um, Anders Compass and this guy, he really stepped up. Uh, he is said to have passed confidential documents to French authorities because of the UN failure to stop abuse of children in Central African Republic. And the reason why that's important, right, is because you've seen how a lot of times all they'll do is just either do nothing or they'll just tell the people you have to leave the country. That's what the UN does. And a lot of times they give these people immunity in their host countries. So imagine you can go someplace and you can just have like a all-you-can-rape buffet of uh, black kids. And on top of them top of you getting the benefit of the doubt because of white privilege and people um not believing them over you and a lot of times um white people covering for you um if for some reason you know a white person does say something against you and you know and you end up getting uh punished or for some reason somebody actually does believe the kids maybe because the their evidence is just uh incontrovertible right um because you have host immunity, all they do is just kick you out. But the immunity is from prosecution in the foreign country. Right. You can still be prosecuted in the in your home country. So this guy. And how was often leaking, does that happen? Um, not that often. What's interesting was this this UN aid worker and this compass was leaking UN internal UN reports to uh, French authorities, to prosecutors in France. You know. Which means uh-huh. that uh, if, when they have this evidence, now they have something with which to actually punish the people in their home countries, which is almost worse than, well, not almost, is worse than whistleblowing to the UN. You know, this is, uh, 
So he was a whistleblower. It says a senior UN aid worker has been suspended for disclosing prosecute to prosecutors an internal report on the sexual abuse of children by French peacekeeping troops in Central African Republic. Sources close to the case say Anders Compass passed the documents to the French authorities because of the UN's failure to take action to stop the abuse. So he went straight to France, right? Mm -hmm. And that's when you can really get in trouble. The report documented the sexual exploitation of children as young as nine by French troops stationed in the country as part of international peacekeeping efforts. Compass, who is based in Geneva, was suspended from his post as director of field operations last week and accused of leaking confidential UN report and breaching protocols. He's under investigation by the UN, blah, blah, blah. Um, He's been involved. He's a senior guy. He's been involved in humanitarian work for more than 30 years. And um, and he's been... um, been uh the abuses took place in 2014 when the UN mission in the country um MINUSCA was in the process of being set up uh the guardian has been passed the internal report um it was commissioned by the UN office of high commissioner for human rights so this is an investigation that the UN did but that they weren't going to leak to the outside and it's stamped confidential on every page and details the rape and sodomy of starving and homeless young boys by French peacekeeping troops who were supposed to uh, be protecting them at a center for displaced people in the capital of Central African Republic. Um, the report says the regular sex abuse by peacekeeping personnel uncovered here and the United Nations appalling disregard for victims are stomach turning but the awful truth is that this is not uncommon the un's instinctive response to sexual violence in its ranks ignore deny cover up dissemble must be subjected to truly independent commission of inquiry with total access top to bottom and full subpoena power this is somebody who outside the un who who was um saying this so you know uh the article says the un faced several scandals in the past relating to his failure to act over pedophile rings operating in Congo, Kosovo, and Bosnia, and face allegations of sexual misconduct by its troops in Haiti, Burundi, and Liberia. The treatment of Compass, a Swedish national, threatened to spark a major diplomatic row. So they spent more time attacking other white people who snitch. This was funny about black people being labeled as being anti-snitching remember how the conservatives and white people created this image of black people ignoring snitching and that made black people like pathologically uh bad or self-destructive or whatever but white people are the true practitioners of staying on code yeah Yeah. they did not snitch the reason why there was a stop snitching uh trend and stuff was because of Black people are the opposite. Black people pathologically snitch. You just watch the show First Forty Eight. Watch a marathon. Oh, it's snitching show. all day. Black people snitch all day long. That's why there's a stop. White people don't need to stay stop snitching because they already know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's almost comical the way some of those dudes got on First Forty Eight and started telling on each other. Yeah, especially the ones that act really tough. The ones who just act like really yeah. badass. Like like in mm-hmm. an hour, they have the time lapse. 
and they're crying <laughs> and snitching. And in real time, it's like 10 minutes <laughs> that yeah. they did the telling. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, freaking, it's freaking ridiculous. Um, but, I mean, the rest of this article is just detailing um, uh, the abuses, but it'll get stomach churning after a while. It's basically all the same types of abuses um, that, that uh, we discussed. But what's interesting about the rest of this article is all the grief that they described that Compass is given. Like they gave him more grief for whistleblowing than they gave to the actual um, accused accused rapist, you know? Oh. And, and at this time in this article, it's from 2015 April, he was still under investigation. So I went to his... Um, I went to his Wikipedia because I was curious to see, I wanted to see what the latest with him was. So it's very short. And so it's just three paragraphs. So I'll just read it in its entirety. Per Anders Gunnar Kampas is a UN official field oper operations director at um, Office of United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. And the reason I give that whole title is to let you know, this wasn't just like a foot soldier. This was guy was a high level guy and they still threw him under the bus. Like he wasn't like just some like rookie or something. He was uh, pretty high up and they still chose to protect rapists and abusers of black people over him. Uh, Compass acted as a whistleblower when he advised French authorities about a report on child sex abuse carried out by French peacekeepers in the central African Republic between December 2013 and July 2014. French authorities rapidly took action to investigate the allegations and reports. The investigations of 14 soldiers are still ongoing. However, the head of the department found that Anders Compass had breached the OHCHR rules of conduct by not seeking the approval of his superior prior to passing on the report to the French and also stated that the report included names and addresses of victims of the abuse, thereby putting them at risk for stigma and retaliation in their home communities. Like, you really care about that. Yeah. You know, uh, it's a fake reason to kind of act like they're doing it for the benefit of the kids. Like, you're not doing anything to the rapist, but you care exactly. about these kids so much. <laughs> Therefore, he suspended Compass from his position. However, the suspension was found to be unlawful by a United Nations Dispute Tribunal. The head of the guy who um was told that it was unlawful then proposed to dismantle the whole unit which would have then removed compass position from the organization like so he said let's just destroy this whole unit just so this guy won't have a job um wow. the whole peacekeeping and this guy's ahead of that unit you know mm -hmm. uh, meanwhile the u.s and other member states criticized the UN for seeming to spend more efforts on discrediting Compass for disclosing the sexual abuses rather than holding the abusers themselves accountable for the crimes. Right. So they were really going after this guy for telling what happened. It's kind of like what happens to officers who who uh, grow up here and actually report abuses by their fellow officers and things like that, the way that oftentimes they're ostracized. Yep. Yeah, on, that's crazy. On 22nd of June, 2015, after much criticism in the media, because it, it was just too much uh, sunlight uh, shown on this, and God forbid I mean, that this didn't get leaked. It was right even to leak it, because it, it worked. Uh -huh. 
The UN Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, appointed an independent panel to investigate the matter. The oh, UN man. panel cleared Anders Kampus from any wrongdoing and concluded that he did indeed have the authority to share the information in the report with the French authorities. The panel also found that the concerns of risk to the victims, by including their identities in the report, had been largely exaggerated. On June 8, 2016, Compass announced his resignation from the United Nations, citing the complete impunity for those who have been found to have in various degrees abused their authority, together with the unwillingness of the hierarchy to express any regrets for the way they acted towards me. So basically, there was so much light shown on this and so much bad press that they pretty much had to finally break down. And um, they finally had to break down and just do right by this guy because it was just looking too bad for them. But if there was even a, a little bit less of public scrutiny, they would have just let this guy remain punished and, you know, fired. Yeah. So, so, so basically, he had to resign. And... This is what I find he broke code, so he had to he had to get punished and ostracized. Yeah, and what's interesting is whistleblowers, even in like white and European society, when it's for something that um, the dominant society agrees is bad, they get retroactively made into heroes. Like they, mm-hmm. this guy should be a hero, you know. Like um, yeah. people act like the people who leaked Watergate and blew open Watergate. Are like huge heroes, and that wasn't even rescuing hundreds of kids from being raped. That's you know got a Republican out of office, like you know. I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was bad, but somebody broke into an office and a Republican president lied, and like people act like that's one of the um, greatest uh, whistleblowing moments things. in the history of the U.S. Yeah, this fucking guy really went through some grief, and he did it, you know. And, and this is why you know I started the show saying not all. Uh, white people who are drawn to volunteer in foreign places, you know, are bad. This is somebody who really put themselves out there and basically ruined his career to help um, these uh, black kids. And this is what you call what what Neely Fuller calls a white sacrifice. They were willing to um, mm-hmm. throw him under the bus and treat him like uh, garbage just to protect uh, white supremacy. It's 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 crazy. It's fucking- yeah, I mean the the person who reported the abuses took more grief and and more personal suffering than the people who were, you know, a lot of times anyway in some of these cases than the people who actually perpetrated the abuses, you know. And then the biggest thing that comes out of a lot of this is okay, we're going to update our methods of investigation. So it's an investigation into the investigations, you know, and then they're going to have another investigation to review how their investigative policies failed them the first time around. You know what I mean? It's that kind of shit. But it's never a talk of punishment for the people who are purported to 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 get into these types of sexual abuses. Yeah, and and it's always some like, kind of very convoluted type of hearing that is basically like stalling on the clock. Like by the time they're resolved, mm-hmm. no one's even following the story anymore. So nobody even realizes that, yeah, so-and-so was found guilty of wrongdoing, but nobody got fired. Or yeah, and according to this article, man, um, yeah. mm-hmm. mass abuses are still going on to this very day um, oh, yeah, with still. organizations associated with the UN well into 2018. You know, there's stories yeah, coming yeah. out of Syria. 
and and also yeah. in this case, also in this case, the people this guy has had the time to be tried multiple times, like you know, uh, convicted, fired, unconvicted, uh, reassessed. Those people that mm-hmm. he uh, whistle blew on, they're still not prosecuted yet. They're still dragging their feet on. Yeah, them. yeah. And the beat goes on. I mean, it's still going on now. I'm looking at an article that talks about just in one quarter alone. From October 1st to December 31st, 2017, uh, there were 40 allegations for all UN entities and implementing partners. And um, it says 12 of the 40 allegations occurred in 2017, seven in 2016, three in 2015 or prior. And the dates are unknown for 18 of them. Out of the 40 allegations, 15 are reported from peacekeeping operations. Um, the 15 are not new allegations. They have all been uploaded in the conduct and discipline database as they have come in. The 25 other allegations of wrongdoing are reported from agencies, funds, and programs and include eight allegations relating to implementing partners. According to the quarterly report, 13 of the 40 allegations against the UN are classified as sexual abuse, 24 are alleged to be sexual exploitation, which why would they, um, differentiate between the two and then three are said to be of an unknown nature they are reportedly 54 victims in total 30 of whom are women and 16 are girls under the age of 18 the ages of eight of the victims are not known so i mean this is still going on there's more information about shit that was going on in syria this year i mean it's it's, it's sick man and it's oh, all sure. in brown countries you know and and I want to um, give this a little bit of a structure. So we talked about the UN uh, peacekeeping, right? But I think we should say like, there's like four types that we can um, yeah. bring up. And the last one is going to bring it back uh, home to Devante Hart. But I mean, there is like uh, the militaristic type of peacekeeping missions like UN and NATO, which we, mm-hmm. um, you know, discuss where people use their white privilege and um that desire for black bodies to really um you know abuse that but then the next thing is something called voluntourism and that's mm-hmm. like where you're kind of doing a combination of volunteering and tourism you know so like that's like doing the peace corps uh volunteering at, at orphanages orphanages are a huge thing and also creating orphanages. There's a lot of civilians. Mm-hmm. They're not like an official UN person with an official capacity. And they're not like part of a religious organization. But just there's a surprising amount of civilians. Like, you know, people like, like a, a Houston businessman or some other type of person who r- open and run orphanages. I didn't know how many. I always thought it was always organizations to do it. But there's a lot of private individuals who almost like, kind of like a hobby have open mm-hmm. foreign orphanages and a lot of them have been busted as long as people uh, as well as people who volunteer in those orphanages and that's like called volunteerism yeah like that's the second type the third type um i would call the how about i characterize it the, the third type the third the third type you know is Damn it, I lost my... There's there's a volunteerism with the um, orphanages. Then there's the um, people who 
come home who do it at home like you know the um sanduskies the mm-hmm. the foster parents actually i said i said four but i guess it's i guess it's three types there's uh the u.n peacekeeping types there's the um volunteerism like with the people creating all these orphanages um abroad and doing these adoption agencies and using mm-hmm. that as a cover some of them private uh, citizens some of them like religious organizations a lot of religious people uh do it and some of them whatever and then the last type uh, is people domestically oh, oh i remember the third and fourth i remember the third and fourth type third type is like police and you know people who have positions of authority because you know a lot of police teachers people, police that kind yeah, of thing te- teachers police and then the final thing is um foster parents and uh and adopted parents which is going to bring us back to um Devante Hart. So we already covered like all the UN peacekeeping things and we have more links about this stuff in the in the show notes. We just want heavy reading about it. Yeah, yeah, but I mean there was one Haitian guy where there was an actual video leak of his rape. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah. Um Damn. UN peacekeeper caught on tape uh, raping a Haitian man. And I don't know what the resolution of that one was, but yeah. These people even get caught on videotape and they still have um, trouble. But there's a really good article at a site called Media Diversified. It's about um, volunteerism and child sex abuse. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to list the examples. Um, March 7, 2016, um, 20-year-old missionary Matthew Durham was sentenced to 40 years in federal prison for sexually abusing uh, children in an orphanage in um, in Kenya. Then um, two British men were involved in child sex abuse in East Africa. Um, the Matthew Durham guy traveled to Kenya four times to volunteer at Appendo Children's Home, an orphanage in Nairobi, Founded by a Kenyan American couple who recruited volunteers from church communities in Oklahoma, and they uh, eventually found um, they eventually found suspicious behavior with this uh, white kid that came over uh, through the church, and found out that she, uh, he was abusing them. Um, in his confession, Durham states that quote a demon named Luke takes him at night and that he is powerless <laughs> to resist his urges so he, so yeah, he, he said that, he's got a. he said this guy said he's got a demon taking him over him. yeah and that he's powerless to uh resist his uh urges that's what um he he um he was convicted in july 2015 on seven counts of abusing children aged five to fifteen three of these convictions were overturned before he was sentenced this week on four counts of molesting children involving one boy and three girls aged uh, five to 14. Um, Mm, mm, mm. Beyond the general horrors of this case, a statement was made by Durham's defense lawyer who claimed his confession was false. Listen Listen to this. His, his defense lawyer claimed his confession was false, saying, quote, the events that occurred in Kenya that last 
that the last maybe five, six days that Matt was there frankly reveal some sort of pseudo-tribal psychological voodoo practiced on him. <laughs> so they basically said that he had... The um, voodoo brothers got him, huh? Yeah. The, uh, so, so, so basically, they found a way to find some kind of racist tropes and still try to blame the black people. They said that some voodoo... <laughs> um, the voodoo priest got him, man. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god! And, and, and you know what? I'm not going to read all, all the cases in this article because it's going to be um, too much. I'll just give a quick summary of what you'll find in in the uh, show notes. If uh, so, basically, there was there's two guys in this article um, named Simon Wood and. Simon Harris. I'll give I'll give the quick the quick thing. Simon Simon Wood, right? Uh-huh. He was a British Airways pilot who um started getting involved in work in in um different places in 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 Africa. And it turned out he was molesting girls. British Airways announced they would have to pay compensation to 38 girls in East Africa, who were sexually abused by pilot uh, Simon Wood. These attacks and many more is thought. This is all they know about. They believe there's many more. Were carried out between 2003 and 2013 in Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. Wood was involved with British Airways community relations work. And legal representatives of his victims have stated that the airline is partially responsible as they had been tipped off about his behavior previously. So... So uh, he, he, in addition, he, along with a number of British Airways um, colleagues, spent uh, a lot of time in orphanages in Kenya. So British Airways created this volunteer program where the pilots can do community relations work as they fly around. So he used his job of flying around the country, I mean, flying around the world, and his company's... Um, community relations work as you know a way to molest as many um girls African as, he girls yeah. as he could in in a 10-year period and they had to um pay out all this money days before a scheduled court appearance he committed suicide no oh, wow yeah and they found explicit images of the children from africa on his um computer oh, so, wow. yeah british airways had to pay a bunch of money simon <sighs> harris a British was a British school teacher who set up an education charity in Kenya, organizing teaching placement for British Gap Year volunteers. Between 1990 and 2013, a full 23 years, he would take boys from the streets to his home, promising them food, after which he raped and sexually abused them, often plying them with drugs and alcohol. And um, concerns had been raised against him in 1989 at a boarding school in Devon where parents of children who were reportedly victims of his um, inappropriate behavior chose not to uh, take legal action. So he kind of got, he dodged a bullet in England in 89, right? Because it's interesting. He did this in 1990 in Africa. So um, so what happened is in 89, he... Um, 
was at a boarding school and he had a close call. That's the kind of inappropriate behavior that he was in trouble with. And he chose not to take legal action. So the year after that, what does he do? 1990, he starts volunteering in Africa. And he gets to do it for 23 years. And what the article says is the authorities were aware of the incident that happened at the boarding school. And Mm -hmm. they still didn't um, regulate his travel to Kenya and monitor. You know, they're like, oh, he's flying to Africa. Who cares what he does? You know, if he was still going to schools in the UK or still doing stuff in UK, we'd have probably had to register. They would have probably been monitoring him, but he got free reign to just travel to Africa and molest kids for 23 uh, years. So, oh, so yeah. He, so yeah, he, um, they say that given the amount of time that he was in Kenya, they uh, think that he abused hundreds, maybe even thousands of um, street children. Yeah, yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Um, so in the show notes is going to be a Roman Catholic priest who used a Honduran orphanage to do sex tourism. Um, Daniel Pye, a married white man who ran an orphanage in Haiti that he used to molest underage girls. Um, a white orphanage operator, Michael Gallenfield, who was accused of molesting orphan boys. Uh, we already mentioned the UN peacekeeper caught on tape raping uh a haitian man yeah and and by the way this is not even extensive because we don't even list i mean we haven't even discussed um independent people just going to some of these countries on like vacation and shit like that just to have sexual exploits with with uh the locals and abuse them and take advantage of them sexually and shit like that we haven't even gotten into that aspect of it yet yeah, just the regular uh, sex tourism, and, yeah. and you know because that's a booming that, industry, apparently. Yep, yep. And because we're trying to keep this tied to a Devante Hart case, you know, yeah, I, yeah, I was yeah. trying only to um, keep it toward things where there's some kind of performative altruism, you know, um, mm-hmm. involved. But but you're right. Once you open it to both. Um, to just straight up sex tourism where people are just taking advantage of the fact people are poor and, you know, we'll do something strange for some change. Then that really um, opens the door. But one of the reasons why I wanted to open with that Neely Fuller, like 17 minute clip was, and this ties in because now we're going back uh, domestically. And uh, before I make this point, I'm, let me just, um, Give some domestic examples. Uh, we have Daniel Holsclaw, the cop who chose to only rape black women, you know, and um, and one of the things he did, uh, we talked about this before, but, you know, he did it to kind of prove that he was white because he was half Asian. He was a half white, half Asian. And one of his fixations was, you know, I guess to prove he was white. When he raped the women, he would keep saying, how does it feel to be having sex with a white guy, you know, uh, whatever. And, but, I guess he, uh, it didn't work proving he was white because he actually got uh, fully convicted. And <laughs> no, none of these uh, <laughs> shenanigans. So I think the court answered that for him. Like, no, you're, you're not white. Um, yeah, you're, not, you're another. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At least now you are anyway. You yeah, know. yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, um, and, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of that was discussed at him trying to... Um, do his deeds in, in the name of whiteness. We're like, hey, listen, man, you don't 
uh, get to join the conquest and the spoils, you know, like like know your place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like uh, you're not you're not white, right? So you know you get all these all these things, and then um, so you, you have the people like uh, those policemen. And then there's like various like uh, foster care cases and cases like the Ohio teacher. What was interesting with the whole um, the reason why we had that uh, seventeen minute clip was because a lot of times. Um, Black people have this kind of uh, such a appreciation for any type of white attention, white allies, white people helping them. Like, and you, you see a lot with the white ally industrial complex that like you see with a lot of the um, black woke people they see online. Like, they're so much more focused on courting and working with and recruiting white allies more than they really are about you know black empowerment and building any type of black infrastructure or or building a code they're very 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 into um white um allies and to the point like you know they don't even really question they're so grateful for white attention or white people helping them they don't even question whether they have any um ulterior motives and what i really like about that clip right the lady is guileless like she's not she doesn't really have a lot of guile she's not savvy enough to really lie so um She's really um, honest, and this is one of the sad truths, and I want to say this in a way that does not make it seem like I'm insulting all white allies or Mm -hmm. people who are doing it for righteous reasons or people who are doing it for secure reasons, but something that we have to realize is not just with allies, but a lot of times it has to do with um, just friends, socially, um, whatever, a lot of times we don't attract the quote unquote best of the white world. A lot of times we attract people who are having their own issues with, uh, fitting into the um, system of white supremacy, who are having their own issues fitting into the dominant society, having their own issues with uh, feeling normal, you know, they might feel. Um, they might feel ostracized, alienated from larger society for whatever reason. And, you know, they come looking to black people for various reasons. Maybe because they're like, oh, like the lady said, you know, oh, black people like suffer so much. And I feel like, you know, I suffer too. And, you know, they suffer with such grace and dignity. And there's a lot to learn from them. There's a beauty, like her whole creepy kind of thing. I feel like that happens a lot. A lot of people like us as some kind of suffering experts, or they, they feel like we can show them, um, the way it's it's interesting. I think that's where a lot of this black woman happened. It's almost kind of sadistic like a benign oh, yeah. sadism in a certain way. I mean, it's really weird what she said, but continue. I didn't mean to Yeah, yeah. So some people are drawn to us for that. Some people are drawn to us because they know that we're easier to get away with um, abusing. Like maybe they have some weird urges, maybe like pedophilia, maybe some kind of thing that, you know, that's a very outcast type of feeling. You know, it's, doesn't, it's very, uh, you kind of living a, closeted um you know weird life and you know when you're around like these uh 
people who are basically like throwaway people, um, garbage people, like non-humans, you can kind of not only get away with it more with impunity, but they're, there's like a lack of humanity to them. They're like, you know, dolls, objects to you. And I feel like you could see a lot of that with how these women were raising these six kids. They dressed them in like toys. They were always in animal costumes and weird outfits. Uh, they were very much objects to those women. And those women seem to have trouble fitting into society. Like in the articles about them, it's always like, you know, they didn't really have a lot of outside relations. They were always secluded. Maybe um, the sexual orientation made them feel to a degree kind of excluded from mainstream society. You know, they were always into these kind of um, hippie festivals and alternative lifestyle festivals. By alternative lifestyle, I don't just mean uh, sexual orientation, but I just mean like alternative as in not mainstream, like, uh, you know, off the beaten path type of uh, festivals that um, hippie-ish, counterculture, progressive um, thing. And we don't really have our guards up with white people the way we do with black people. Like, you know what I mean? And then, and that ties into how that lady gave up um custody of her kid like no question no question asked it's you know it's it's like nuts and a lot of that in these stories that are going to be in the show notes a lot of that was happening with these african people too they were um just giving up custody of their kids a lot of times to these people running the orphanages and whatever you know and they just probably figure especially in these colonized places where um Jesus and the saints and the gods and the priests, they all have like, you know, white skin, blue and green eyes. You know, a lot of these people think, they don't just think Jesus is white. They think all white people are Jesus. It goes both ways. Yes. You know, <laughs> it goes it goes both ways. It's kind of heavy if you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Literal gods. Yeah. They, 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 literal, literal gods walking like, earth. Yeah. Literal gods. They don't realize like a lot of these people might be people who you know, have these like little, these, these, um, pedophilic urges that they feel ashamed of. And they feel like, you know, mm-hmm. they can go away from like mainstream, respectable, middle-class square society you know, and indulge in it in these dark, literally dark places, you know? All right. That's the end of part two. Come back for episode 87 Part three, where we have an interesting conversation about Jeffrey Dahmer. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you guys soon. Take care.